If you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's open them to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. Um, this, is a, this is a very long passage. And typically what I do, what we do, is read the passage first. It's very long. And I mentioned this two weeks ago. I, I, I feel the same way this week. It's, it's a narrative. It's a story of events. And I'd like to, rather than reading advance, I'm going to give you a little bit of a synopsis of what it's about. But I also want to give you the title. If you don't have your uh, sermon uh, handouts here for notes, we have some down here if you want to grab them and a pen. You can take notes today. But the sermon title today is probably the longest sermon title that I've ever came up with in my life. And it's not really terribly creative. It's really about the passage. So the sermon title is this, An Unclean Demon, A Fever, and Preaching the Kingdom of God. <laughs> Three things. An unclean demon, a fever, and preaching the kingdom of God. So basically what happens, it was great that Wayne highlighted what we heard last week, or two weeks ago, I should say, where Jesus was at home in Nazareth and uh, preached a great sermon, great at the beginning. They loved it, his wonderful words. They really appreciated him. He preached with, with authority. And then they all of a sudden realized he's talking about us. We're the sinners. We're the ones who, who need Him to be our Savior and to save us from all these things. Well, at the end of the day, they wanted to kill Him. And so He, he gets away. We don't know how exactly He gets away, but it says He kind of walked through the crowd and, and escaped. And so today what we're going to see is we're going to see that He's now in Capernaum. He's, he's walked approximately 1,200 feet downhill to the Sea of Galilee, a beautiful little town just on the Sea of Galilee, and He's going to do what He does. He's going to go into the synagogue there, and he's going to preach the kingdom of God. And as he's in the this, this, this synagogue, as he's preaching, at some point, there's a guy who yells out, he's got a demon in him, and the demon speaks. Well, Jesus is going to cast that demon out, and it's a remarkable event. People are amazed, and not only that he's preaching with authority, but with power. And then after this particular event, after church, synagogue on this Sunday, he goes for a potluck lunch at Simon Peter's home, or his mother-in-law's place, actually, and, and she's got a fever. She's really, really ill, and they have to petition Jesus, like, could, could, you, could you maybe help her? I mean, this demon thing, you just dealt with that. Could you help her? And he does. And she's immediately uh, uh, healed from her fever, and she's able to get up immediately and serve her guests. And then what we see is in the evening, and this all happens, by the way, in a period of 24 hours. It's crazy. In the evening, people are like, well, look what he can do. And they start bringing from the town of Capernaum and all over the place all these people who've got their demon-possessed, and, and they've got illnesses and sicknesses, and they bring them to Jesus, and the text tells us he heals everyone, not just a few, not just a few, every single person. Next morning, he gets up. He goes to a desolate place, a private place for his morning devotions. He needs to get recharged, and he prays. Well, the crowd goes looking for him, right? And they're like, we want this guy to stay with us. And he's like, I I've preached the kingdom of God here. I need to move on. I need to go to other towns and preach the kingdom of God. That's the passage. We're going to look at it in depth. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for this day. Father, thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you for uh, the work that Dr. Luke did to gather all these stories and put it in an orderly account so that his dear friend Theophilus would have certainty, would know for sure that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, risen from the dead, 
and he could trust him and place his faith in him. And then by extension, here we are today, 2,000 years later, reading these stories and, and seeing the, the truth in them and the power in what Jesus did. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the, the thoughts that you've given to me, the, the words, and, and most importantly, your words. You would speak to our hearts today and teach us from these things. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember very well about eight, uh, actually it's almost nine years ago now when we first moved to Squamish, met a woman uh, who was uh, pretty well known in town, I won't mention any names, but uh, uh, met her on several occasions, a longtime resident of Squamish, a bit of a powerhouse in this town, and we got to know each other, um, and she was sharing a lot about the community because I was a new church planter here, we hadn't got a core group or a church at all yet, and so anyone I can talk to who wants to talk to me can tell me about Squamish and the people here, what the needs are, I would talk to them. Many times got together with her and we'd talk about it. And she seemed after a while a little bit curious about, you know, why we're here, planting a church and all the rest. A little standoffish about the, the subject, quite frankly. But we kept talking and talking, and it was pretty good. I learned a fair bit about her and her background and, and about her family and about her views. And one day we, we were together and we're talking, and, uh, you know, she's, uh, uh, an event had just happened in the world uh, um, a real evil act had taken place. And she took that opportunity to say to me, you know, this is, the, this is one of the reasons why, to be honest with you, I don't believe in God. I, I, I can't believe in a God who would allow this kind of thing to happen in our world. And I remember at the time, honestly, I, I remember at the time going, dear Lord, help me. <laughs> what do you say? Like, you know, you're at that point, here's a person who's not a believer. As far as I know, she's probably was, probably is an atheist, very well-educated woman, uh, I think a couple of degrees from UBC. She's not one of the aggressive types of atheists, but she doesn't believe, and I'm like, Lord, help me, what do I say? And I actually didn't hear it audibly, maybe thankfully, but I did hear these words, and I actually asked this question. I asked her, are things the way that they should be? It was interesting. She paused. She stopped. She just looked at me. I kept going. <laughs> I, I said, are things the way they should be in our world? I mean, she just told me that an evil act had taken place. You, know, you, you don't have to be too old you know, in this world to, to discover, to start to begin to believe that maybe things in this world are not the way that they should be and that there's, there's evil out there. I remember being eight, nine years of age as a kid, and my mom and dad watching Walter Cronkite on television, like literally fearfully watching him because they were pretty sure that any day nuclear warheads were going to come flying from Russia or Cuba and the world would be in a nuclear war, an attack. And President Kennedy and all these people, I mean, I remember at that time looking at my mom and my dad, the adults, and going, what's going on here? Things are much better today, right? No, not really. Not really. So I said that to her. I said, are, are things, what about in our world, right? Again, she'd already just told me about this evil act. And then I said, I mean, politically, socially, economically, environmentally, are things the way that they should be? And as I was saying these things, her head just started doing this, just shaking her head. No, no, they're not. And then I, I don't know why, <laughs> I got personal. And I said, how about in your own personal life? How about in your marriage? How about with your kids? She'd already told me that she was having significant troubles with one of her daughters. I've used that or asked that question numerous times since that day. 
It's always been a very good way to break the ice in talking to people about Jesus, to be honest with you, about breaking down some of the things and thoughts people have about God in our world today. It's a good question to ask. So, let me ask you, are things the way that they should be in this world today? If you think not, raise your hand. That's the answer I get every single time. Every single time that I ask that question, I, I get that answer where people are shaking their heads and they're, they're, they're listening and, and they agree that things are not the way that they should be. So now I want you to think about this because this is really important because I think about this afterwards after I've been talking to her and, and I, I'm wondering, okay, next time I get together, I, I, w- I thought of another question and I didn't have a chance to ask her that, but I'll ask you. How do we even know that? How is it possible that you and I know that things are not the way that they should be? Who who put you or me in charge of the way things should be? Like, where's the manual on that? Who wrote that? Have Have any of you in this room ever been in a place, don't say Maui, been in a place for like an extended period of time where everything was as it should be in the world, politically, socially, in your life, in your family, for an extended period of time? Anyone ever been there? Because if you had been there, you could come back to the rest of us and say, well, I've been there. I've seen that. How do we even know that there is such a thing as the ideal? That's an important question. A very important question. Well, listen, if you were an atheist or an unbeliever, but particularly an atheist, um, the answer that you would have for that is, well, the default, which is, Darwinian evolution, right? Everything is evolution, right? I mean, everything has come out of that. And the idea is is that, well, what's happened is we've been evolving over the years and over the centuries, and, and what's happened is we've gotten to the point where we've been developing this notion that there is a way of living that will provide for human flourishing, and so it's kind of like a pipe dream. It's kind of, it's kind of like a, a vision that we have of what it could be like. Some problems with that when you think about it, because the first problem is, is that, well, wait a second. Your vision of the ideal might not be the same as mine, right? Everybody has their own opinion on these things. But here's the truth. If you're going to hold to that perspective, if you're going to hold to the perspective of an atheist, the truth is you have to believe this. You have to not believe that statement. You have to believe that things are exactly the way that they should be. You're compelled to believe that because of Darwinian evolution and the philosophy that comes out of it. Most of you know the man by the name of Richard Dawkins. Really interesting guy. I like to describe him as an evangelical atheist because he, you know, he, he's, really, he's really out there, isn't he? He really has this faith against God. It's amazing. He wrote a book. It's called River Out of Eden. (laughs) Okay? River Out of Eden, meaning what we got to do is we got to get out of Eden in order to find the facts and the truth about life and where we are. The subtitle of that book is Our 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 Darwinian View of Life. Wow. So it's another story, right? It's another story that's being told for us to believe in. Well, here's what he writes in his book. I'm going to quote a couple of things. I'll put it on screen for you. He says this, in a universe, look at these words, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, look at, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. You want to be lucky, right? 
and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. Now, I find it interesting that, you know, this man apparently is a scientist, but he's giving to these material things personal human traits, like being selfish, as if a gene gets up in the morning and goes, I think I'm going to be selfish today. I understand what he's trying to describe, but this is what he's saying. He concludes in the same passage with this. The universe that we observe, look, has precisely the properties we should expect. If, that's a very big if. If, look what he concludes with. There is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Mr. Positive, isn't he? I've watched several YouTube videos of himself and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and others, and it's, it's like they, 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 the way they, they speak to the audience is like, get over yourselves, snowflakes. You know, there's no point to life. Some people are going to get hurt and some people are going to get lucky. It's just chance. That takes a lot of faith. And as we sung about earlier today, there's no hope in that, is there? But there's a problem with that. Every single one of you in this room, I believe, agreed a little while ago, 100% of us, that things are not the way that they should be. Well, how do we know that? Well, the answer is, there is a better answer. And the answer is, we need to actually go back to Eden. (laughs) Not away from it. In Genesis, we are told that we are created in the image of God. We have the imago Dei, the Latin meaning we have the image of God in us. Even as unbelievers, even as people who are born in sin in this world today, we have this residue, this residual in our souls, if not our DNA, that tells us that we know there is a God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that we know every single human being knows that there is a God. What do we do with it? Well, Romans 1 tells us that we suppress the truth about it. Mr. Dawkins is writing book after book after book, suppressing the truth about that. The Imago Dei is resident in you, enemy. That's how we know. That's how we get to the place where we know things are not the way that they should be, and there has to be something more. As many of you are probably aware, this past week, Billy Graham passed away. What a man of God. It's kind of sad to me. I know there will be probably many articles coming out even about by, written by Christians who will start criticizing him for some theological nuance or whatever. It's kind of sad. We do that to our own. He passed away. I remember hearing him. I was a Christian six months in Toronto, and uh, he spoke, and I still remember the message about family, about parenting. I still remember the nuggets of it. It was that powerful of a message. He, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but I, I was just reading about his death this week and, and about his life, and then I, I discovered something that maybe you weren't aware of. He actually did a TED Talk. <laughs> Can you believe that? Most of you know what a TED Talk is, right? Well, he was invited at 80 years of age, which would have been uh, 19 years ago, in 1998, to a TED conference in Los Angeles to speak. He was the last presenter, and his Parkinson's and other diseases were really slowing him down, and he's coming up on stage, and he gets up on stage, and he's so humble, right? And he says, i got to quote this, he said when he got up on stage, as a clergyman, you can imagine how out of place I feel, right? right? I mean, in this room, in 1998, you got these techies, these, these technology people, the design people, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, it costs like $1,500 to $2,500 for a seat 
at a TED Talk. So it's not like, you know, like 50 bucks, we get to go and hear people talk for 15, 20 minutes. No. So Billy's there, and then just as an opener, you know, he says that, and then he says, you know, a few years ago, I was at another conference, and I was in um, there, and I was in the elevator, and uh, one man said, I hear Billy Graham is going to be at this conference. And the other man said to him, well, yes, in fact, he's right behind you. He's right there. And then Billy described it. And he said, uh, he, go, he goes, this guy looked me up and down and sideways um, for about 15, 20 seconds. And, and he was just shaking his head. And he just looked at me. And then he looked back at the other man. And he says, man, what an anticlimax. <laughs> now, he says this in front of these technology nerds, right? These young urbanites who are so successful in life. But then he goes on. He went on to talk about how marvelous technology is, the wonder of things that it can do for us, uh, and, and it's just amazing. I mean, you know, I got the iPhone, I got the iPad, I got the Mac. I mean, we all do, right? Technology is a fantastic thing. But then Billy Graham said this to the crowd. He said, but friends, but friends, the reason why I'm here today is to remind all of us that science and technology will never, has never, solved the three biggest problems that humanity faces. The first is the problem of evil. The second is the problem of suffering, suffering from poverty as well as physical and psychological suffering, he added. And finally, the problem of death. Nailed it. That room got pretty quiet. They were laughing about the joke, and all of a sudden, very, very, very quiet. He concluded that they should learn and we should learn from all of this that the reason why things are not the way that they should be, the reason why we, we, don't have, we don't have the answer to the problems of evil and suffering and death is because the problem is you. That's what Billy did. He pointed to the crowd and said, you and me, we're the problem. We're the problem. So why would we be looking at the people who are the problem for the answer to the question, how should things be? How should things be? And so let me summarize it this way with you. We all know that the atheist, we've got to know the atheist is wrong. There's certainly no hope in that. But at least at this level, things are not the way that they should be. And we should be honest and admit this to ourselves. We're the reason. There's no one else to blame, really, when you think about it. So what do we do? What do we do with this scenario? What do we do when we find ourselves in a world where things are not the way that they should be most of the time? How do we, without God in our lives, how do we make things better the way that they should be? Well, the reality is, for the most part, we make things like peace and comfort and pleasure our gods. Because the point is, of course, it's the pursuit of happiness, right? And so if, if I'm just happy, and trust me, being in Maui on a beach with a non-alcoholic drink with an umbrella in it, or the other way, that could make me happy for a while. That's our pursuit. That's what we generally go to. That, that's what our culture will say to us that we need to go to in order for us to be happy and, and, and to be really the kind of people or have the life and make things the way that we think they should be. So naturally, what do we do though when we find that we try that, we try that, we try that, and it just doesn't work. We still find ourselves in a situation where when we look at the news and, and we see the evil that's going on in our world around us, and then the, the struggles in our own life, the suffering, people are sick, people are dying, and we can't solve these problems. What do we do? Well, 
Again, a couple of options. One, we medicate, right? We turn to things that will, when things are really not happy and really struggling, well, we'll medicate. That's, that's what we do as human beings. We, we medicate. Or we're just going to try harder. <laughs> we're going to throw ourselves at, at work and, and at recreation, right? We're going to look at every spirituality under the sun, including yoga. Now, listen, it's not always bad. I get that. But listen, most people who are not Christian, who are not believing in God, one of the the main reasons why they look into spiritualities like that is because things are not the way that they should be, and they want them to be that way. What do we want? We want peace, we want comfort, and we want pleasure. We want happiness. So you might be asking... (laughs) What's going on here? What's, what's with this preamble to this passage? Well, this is actually what this passage is all about. This passage proves to us and shows to us that Jesus Christ is the only one who can answer all three of these problems. And we see it here in this text. It's absolutely remarkable. And that's why Billy Graham preaches on it all the time. We can't solve these problems. Only one person can solve these problems. And so if you look at this passage on the surface, you go like, demons? Really? <laughs> demons? Okay, a fever, but then he rebukes the fever as if it's a... It's interesting. And so we look at these things and we wonder. So for context, let me put the verses on screen from two weeks ago when Jesus was in Nazareth and, and he's preaching to his home synagogue. And let's reread these just for context. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. This is a thousand-year-old prophecy from Isaiah about him. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Proclaiming, preaching, is about announcing. That's what he's doing. By, By proclaiming and by preaching, It's about announcing, and Jesus keeps telling us what he's announcing. He's announcing good news, the gospel, about the kingdom of God. That's what he's preaching. And he's saying that that kingdom is being fulfilled in me. Matthew records Jesus' arrival on the scene in a very interesting way. Right after the temptation in the desert, Jesus comes down from the temptation with the devil where he has defeated Satan, evil, really once and for all. And then Matthew records these words. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I'm stressing this because we come to a passage like this, it is so simple to read in our Bibles and just go, Wow, awesome. (laughs) Casts out demons, fevers, preaches the kingdom of God. What's going on here? And what's going on here really at the macro level? is what I want to look at. At the micro level, it's casting out a demon, healing a fever, preaching. The macro level that's going on here is Jesus is announcing the arrival, the initiation of the kingdom of God, the reversal of all things, the beginning of the process of making things once and for all the way that they should be. 
There's a four-part that you can memorize. It's pretty simple. We've been over it many times as rocksters. It's called creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's the story of God. You and I are this little, little blips within the story of God, and that's what the Bible is from Genesis to Revelation. It is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation in Eden, the way things were supposed to be. Perfect. Perfect. No sin, no brokenness, no death, no evil. Communion with God on a daily basis, your creator. Husband and wife, love. Replicating the love that is in the Trinity of God. Fall. We're responsible. Adam and Eve, well, we're responsible. Brokenness. This is the problem. This is where it all started. The way things were supposed to be, the way things were, has been ruined. God says, I'll fix it. I'll fix it through redemption, sending Jesus into this world to die and live the perfect life that you and I cannot live, to do all these things, to usher in and show us that the kingdom of God is breaking forth into our world with power and authority so that restoration could take place. So here's the thing about the plan of God that I really, really love. <laughs> it doesn't matter how hard I work or how hard you work or how badly we work. He's going to restore all things. Amen? He's going to do it, with us or without us, and that's, that's a blessing, really, when you think about it. Number one, an unclean demon. Let's read the story. Here are the verses. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So we've already been over this. He, he's been rejected in his hometown, but he's he, he's on a mission. He's on a mission, and, and, and he needs to go and, and show people a number of things. And so he goes into this town. He continues preaching on the Sabbath, and he's a very powerful preacher, we read. People really respect him. Same thing that happened in Nazareth at first is, wow, this guy is absolutely amazing. And Luke goes on and says, and in the synagogue, in the synagogue, right in church, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he, the demon, cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You know, I, this is an area where I think many of us today, even in the church, I'll, I'll, I'll confess I might be guilty of this, where we're no different than the people in Nazareth when Jesus preached in his home synagogue. We, we, we neglect to believe in the demonic spiritual realm. We think like it's not really there, right? C clearly they didn't. Jesus said, I have come to set you free, kids, from what? Bondage to Satan, to evil. That's the first thing that I have to do for you, is I have to set you free from that. But it's an area that we, we totally neglect. We just don't, I mean, we read the story in the Bible and go, well, it's Jesus, you know, and it's an interesting event, but, you know, guys, we know recently that in Parkdale, Florida, a very tragic evil event happened in our world again, right? Things are not the way that they should be. A young man gets a semi-automatic rifle, goes into a school, and kills 17 people. 
young men and women and wounds a bunch of other people. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And so what, what, are, what is the clamor in society? Well, we need more gun laws. Yeah, we do. No question about it. Some people are even saying, well, you know, but he, he's suffering from mental health and, you know, he probably needed his medication topped up or changed or whatever it might be. Or, or some people are even saying, which is much to the chagrin of the other people who just want capital punishment, you know, he probably needed a hug more often. That's probably true too. Are demons involved? Not even on the radar. Not, not even, even remotely a possibility that there was some demonic activity happening here. And if we won't even admit to that, if we won't even come to that, well, clearly we're not going to know how to deal with it. Clearly we're not going to know how to deal with it. Let's remember what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 right after he gave us great instruction on how to live our lives in such a way that we would flourish according to the plan of God when it comes to husbands and wives and children and masters and slaves. He then says, now when you go into the world, it's not going to be a picnic. There's going to be something called spiritual warfare. And then Paul tells us, he says this in Ephesians 6.12, I'll have it on screen, for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, we don't wrestle against other human beings, per se, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So this man with the unclean spirit, look, he's in the church. Now, I don't want anybody looking around, okay? But he's right there. And some would think that, well, maybe the demon just possessed him on that day or oppressed him on that day. But no, it would appear like he's had this for a while. The other thing we should see that's pretty clear from the text, it's really simple, is the very presence of Jesus makes the demon aware of who he is. And they know who he is. And they know why he has come. I find the one part there, I mean, there's just one. There's not a legion of demons in this man. There is one. But he's actually speaking for the others when he says, what are you going to do with us? He has to already have known that Jesus has defeated his head. He has to already have known that. And that's why there's a war going on here. Even there, even in the language, in the Greek, the way they're putting it is, is almost like it's a what are you going to do with us? There's a little bit of sarcasm in the Greek, as if they have any hope. Well, they don't, because Luke goes on to record the rest of it for us, where he says this, Jesus rebuked him, saying, shut up. That's more literal in the Greek. Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed. Here we are. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? <laughs> yeah, that would be shocking, wouldn't you? Like, be like, that's shocking to have just seen that. What is this word? For with authority and power now they're talking. He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So the first thing that Jesus does, and we'll see this through the Gospel of Luke, and you'll see it in other Gospels, the first thing he ever does when he confronts the demon is tell it to shut up. He will not permit it to speak anymore. 
He commands it not to speak. It will not have the podium at the same time as Jesus. All the people are amazed. So what is Jesus doing here? What is he doing at this point? See, here's the thing. That I, there are so many things to love about Jesus, aren't there? But one of the things that I, I, I love and we should see, then you should love, is that when he declared a week ago in his hometown that he was the one who was coming to deal with these things, the problem of evil, I have come to proclaim this, that I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. He doesn't just say he's going to do it. He goes and does it. He goes and demonstrates to the people in that day that he has the power and the authority and us today. So that, Theophilus, Glenn, and everyone in this room, you might have certainty about who Jesus Christ really, in fact, is. The problem of evil has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with, and he has dealt with it. The question is this, has he dealt with it for you? Has he? Has he given you personal freedom from evil? Are you free? Do you feel it and sense it? Number two is a fever. <laughs> when the sun was setting, pardon me, uh, and he arose, left the synagogue. Is that where we're at? Yes. And entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. I love the way Luke shifts this. It's a very simple story. The first story is kind of like in a stadium, like a rock star situation. You know, it's like blown up. I mean, if Hollywood producers were involved, the guy's rolling on the floor and, he, and he's foaming at the mouth, you know, and it's, it's a big event. The synagogue is full and people are there. And then he's in a home. And there's just family there. Just a few people are there. And the first thing that they do, look what they, it says here. It says, she's got the fever, and, but she's got a fever that's so bad, she herself can't go to Jesus and say, hey, could you just touch me? Could you just heal me? She's so down with the fever, her friends, her son-in-law, have to appeal on her behalf. That's interesting, isn't it? What is happening here? She's suffering from a fever. There's the problem of evil. There's the problem of suffering. And Jesus is, is not like, look, I'm here for the big story. I'm here for the, the problem of evil thing. Once I've done that, no. His touch is personal. It's for you and me. And here's the interesting thing. He uses us to appeal on others' behalf so that they may be touched, they may be healed. They may be sustained in their suffering because things are not made perfect just yet. It goes on. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had <clears throat> any who were sick and with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on everyone, and he healed them. And demons also came out of many of them, crying, you are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. The point is, it's not that they knew he was the Christ and that he didn't want, they're not the ones who are going to proclaim who He is. He will. He will proclaim who He is. So it's been a long day for Jesus, right? A very long day, preaching in the synagogue in the morning, preaching a sermon. I can tell you it's emotionally draining, right? No time for a pastoral nap in the afternoon. He's got to go to the potluck. He's got to heal 
Simon's mother-in-law of her fever. And then after all this, you know, like they're bringing people on stretchers, on beds, carrying them, walking them to him. And all evening, he's healing everyone. This is a very, very long day. It's a very long day. Number three, preaching the kingdom of God. And when it was day, he departed. And he went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So the very next day, it's back to work for this itinerant healing preacher, right? But the first thing that he's got to do on Monday morning, Saturday, Sunday morning actually in this case, first thing that he's got to do is he's got to go back to the well. He's got to pray to his heavenly Father, and he needs more Holy Spirit. But, but the crowd, they're like, they, they run after him, and they're like, and who wouldn't? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you? <laughs> they, they run after him, they're like, we don't want to let you go. We want you to stay here with us. I, I would do that. But Jesus is like, I've already displayed my power and my authority. I've already shown you that the kingdom of God is breaking out, that things are being reversed to the way that they should be. I got to go tell others. I got to go tell others. It's remarkable what we see here. So, no, things are not the way that they should be. They're not. But I hope you believe this, Christian. In Christ today, they can be. They can be. In your life, in your home, in your family, in your marriage, in your work, they can be. And one day, dear friends, things will be the way that they should be, that they were intended to be forever. And why do I say that? Is that my promise? No, thankfully. He said so. He said so. I mentioned tetelestai, which we will talk about on Good Friday. It is finished. What was finished? Redemption. The act of redemption was finished. On that weekend, it was finished. Lord Jesus uh, called the Apostle John up to heaven at the very end of your Bibles in chapter 21 of Revelation. He calls him up to heaven, and he says, uh, here, here, write this down. This is what's going to happen before I come again. And then this very interesting passage he says to John these words, or John writes this, and he who was seated on the throne, he is who? King Jesus, king of the kingdom, said, behold, I am making all things new. Friends, the tense there, this is written about 25, 30 years after the churches were planted, after the day of Pentecost. Jesus is saying to John, then, I am making things new. Now, if you're in Christ here today, you're a new creation in Christ. You've been made new. Not perfect yet, but you've been made new. I am making all things new. Also, he said, I love this. John, you're here, you know, and you're listening to me. Would you write this down? Because, you know, if you were there, if I was there, I'd be like, look at this. And this is at the end of the book that he's been writing these things down. For these words are trustworthy and true, and he said to me, it is done. It's a different word in the Greek. It stands for completion. 
completion. He promised. He absolutely promised that this day would take place. So let me close with a couple of thoughts. Number one, evil does not have the upper hand. Jesus does. Amen? He does. Satan does not have the higher place despite what evil looks like in our world today. Jesus has the higher place. Amen? I know you're Mennonite brethren, some of you are Baptist or whatever, but you can say amen, okay? You can talk out loud, okay? You can respond. Sin does not have power over you. Jesus does. And listen, death will not have the final say. Oh, to be where Billy Graham is right now. Oh, to be there. So how do you live this out today? How can you possibly live that out today? Because, come on, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of death, we're still facing these things. We still have to face these things. First and foremost, this right here. This is why we go through books of the Bible, why we study. This is the manual on the way things should be. Now, there's a lot in here about the way things should not be, how we've turned things around, but it's all about how things, the way things should be. It's right here. We need to be into this and studying this and find it there for our personal life, for our marriages, for our family, for our kids, for our work environment. It's all there. It's all there. But secondly, can I propose this in a, as powerful way as I can? Because I, I, I need to really grow in this area, and I, I'm thinking most of us do. Maybe we need to do what Jesus did. Maybe we need to pray. Maybe we need to go to the well more often, more deeply. Do you remember when his disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? Why were they asking him, how do we pray? They were asking him, how do we pray? How would we pray so we can be like you? How can we pray so that we can cast out demons and do these things? That's what they were asking for. What did Jesus tell them? You, know, you guys know, right? I was raised Catholic, so I knelt at the altar many times, repeated this prayer over and over many times as my penance. But these words are amazing when you think about what Jesus accomplished when he came. He said, pray this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. This is supposed to be a daily prayer. How do I know that? because it goes on right after that and says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we forgive others, right? And then it ends with, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from happiness, evil. Because it still exists. It's still here. Friends, that's our prayer. That's what we need to conclude with today. We need to pray every day that the kingdom expansion that God has initiated in Jesus Christ when He walked this earth and when He cast out demons and when He healed people of fevers and everything else, we need to ask God that the way it is in heaven today, which is perfect and the way it will be for eternity, that it'll happen here now. Do you have faith? He told us to pray this way. Pray with me, would you?